Our focus this evening as we continue our study on the men around Paul is on what we could call one of the villains of the New Testament. We're now shifting gears, having looked at quite a few of the inspiring characters around the Apostle Paul. We'll now take a little bit of time as we get near the end of this series to look at some of the villains around Paul. One of those villains, one of those negative examples is the man Hymenaeus. Now, it's important to note at the beginning that these negative examples, these villains that we find in the New Testament, have a place to play in our study. While it is very helpful to look at the positive examples, those which we want to imitate, it is also helpful and it is also an act of the divine wisdom uh, that we find revealed in Scripture that we have negative examples, examples of what not to do, examples which spur us on and are used by the Lord providentially to keep us on the right path. And Hymenaeus is one of those men. And I've, I've subtitled our study of Hymenaeus an example of apostasy. An example of apostasy. As we look at his life this evening through a few brief statements by the Apostle Paul, we're going to trace the development, the progression, or you could even just say the characteristics of apostasy in the life of this man. First of all, we're going to see that Hymenaeus evidenced this apostasy through his rejection of self-watchfulness. He evidenced his apostasy through his rejection of self-watchfulness. Secondly, we're going to see that he evidenced his apostasy through the experience of spiritual collapse, spiritual collapse, spiritual disaster. Thirdly, we'll see his apostasy displayed through his promotion of substantive error. And then finally, we will see that his apostasy merited severe discipline. He rejected self-watchfulness. He experienced spiritual collapse. He promoted substantive error, and he merited severe discipline. Now, before we get into his life, I want to take you into John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress for just a few moments. Some of you may have read Pilgrim's Progress, and there is a scene in Uh, Bunyan's allegory when Christian, this believer who is on his way to the celestial city, comes uh, comes across a house owned by one interpreter. It's the house of the interpreter. And once Christian enters the house, and it's quite a process to get into the, the house of the interpreter, but once he gets in, he, he's shown seven vignettes. These seven vignettes focus on these seven things. He sees a portrait of a godly pastor. He sees the distinction between law and gospel. He sees the virtue of patience contrasted with passion. He sees the grace of Christ conquering the assailed heart. He sees the persevering, valiant pilgrim. He sees the despairing apostate in an iron cage. And he sees the warning of the final day of judgment. These seven vignettes all serve in a way to help Christian, 
along his journey, and it's important for interpreter to show Christian each of these vignettes. I want to look at the sixth vignette at this point in, in our study for just a moment. The sixth vignette is the vignette of the apostate in the iron cage. And let me read a little bit from Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. I quote, Then Christian said, Now let me go forward. That is, after he has seen the five vignettes, he wants to get on his way. And then I resume here. But the interpreter replied, No, you must stay until I have showed you a little more. After this, you can be on your way. So he took him by the hand and led him into a very dark room where a man sat in an iron cage. Now this man seemed very sad to look upon. He sat with his eyes looking down toward the ground, his hands tightly folded together, and he sighed as if his heart would break. Then said, Christian, what does this mean? So the interpreter told him to talk with the man. Here's the conversation. I've preserved it from the Old English. Christian says, what art thou? Man in the iron cage says, I am what I was not once. Christian responds, what wast thou once? The man states, I was once a fair and flourishing professor. That is a professor of faith, both in my own eyes and also in the eyes of others. I once was, as I thought, fair for the celestial city and had even then joy at the thoughts that I should get thither. Christian responded, well, but what art thou now? Man responded, I am now a man of despair and shut up in it as in this iron cage. I cannot get out. Oh, now I cannot. But how camest thou into this condition, Christian asks. The man says this, I left off to watch and be sober. Now, when he says I left off, it means he stopped. I stopped watching and being sober. I laid the reins upon the neck of my lusts. I sinned against the light of the world and the goodness of God. I have grieved the Holy Spirit and he is gone. I tempted the devil and he has come to me. I have provoked God to anger and he has left me. I have so hardened my heart that I cannot repent. That is the man in the iron cage. It is the man uh, that Bunyan writes about who is an apostate. And When we look at Hymenaeus, this one individual in Paul's life, we see a concrete example of such a man. He is found mentioned in two texts. Both of them are in Paul's correspondence to Timothy. In 1 Timothy 1, verses 18 to 20, we read these words. This command, Paul says, he's referring back specifically to verses 3 and 5 of chapter 1. But he says, this command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight, keeping faith. And a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. That letter was written shortly after Paul's release from his first Roman captivity. 
It would have been around the year AD 64. But Hymenaeus is still around when Paul writes to Timothy about two years later from his second Roman imprisonment. When Paul writes his last will and testament to Timothy, in AD 66, he writes these words, 2 Timothy 2, verses 16 to 18. He says, but avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, men who have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place, and they upset the faith of some. Now, scholars pretty much agree that the reference to Hymenaeus in both of these texts, especially because both of these texts are written to Timothy, though at different times, written to Timothy when Timothy was in Ephesus, that they refer to the same man, one and the same individual, a man that we know as an apostate. Let's just look at a few things, a few observations about Hymenaeus' background that we can glean from these texts. First of all, Hymenaeus was named after the Greek god of marriage, and that testifies to the fact that Hymenaeus was raised in some kind of a pagan background. Hymenaeus is also only mentioned in Paul's letters to Timothy, indicating that he was associated with Ephesus, because when Timothy is is when he receives the letters from Paul, when Paul writes to him, Timothy is in the city of Ephesus serving there. And so Paul makes reference to Hymenaeus to Timothy, suggesting that Hymenaeus was associated with this Ephesian church and and that Timothy knew him well, and, and Paul obviously did as well. It's possible that Hymenaeus, around, along with Alexander, who's mentioned in 1 Timothy one twenty were involved even in ministry alongside Paul at some point. Well, we just don't know, but it appears that, that, that Paul suggests that he knows Hymenaeus and, and that Hymenaeus actually had a good background or a, or a good start to things until these events happened in his life. But as I said, both of these references to Hymenaeus are negative, and both of these references in both letters are the antithesis of what Timothy is commanded to be. And what Paul does is he refers specifically to this man for Timothy's benefit, to say, Timothy, remember Hymenaeus. Let Hymenaeus' example motivate you to fight the good fight. We'll look at that in just a moment. But in light of this, how can we summarize the events? And, and some of this may be a little bit of speculation, but I, I think there's some good basis to suggest these or this kind of scenario with respect to Hymenaeus and Paul. At some point prior to the writing of 1 Timothy, Hymenaeus had joined the church in Ephesus, participated in ministry with Paul and or Timothy, but then had rejected the need for watchfulness over one's life. He proceeded to abandon the apostolic faith. He advocated heretical views and was then excommunicated by Paul himself. His influence nonetheless endured, evidenced by Paul's second reference to him again two years later when he's still teaching heresy, as Paul refers to him in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Let's look at this, and this is very important, men, because undoubtedly you have people that you can recall, that you can think of even right now and identify people who at one point in their lives 
profess to know and to love Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. But today, they blaspheme the name of Jesus, or they live in abject immorality, or they advocate teachings that are contrary to sound doctrine. What has happened, and how can we understand that, and and how can that even serve as a warning and a reminder for us? We have to look at Hymenaeus' life carefully. And as we do, notice this first lesson to learn from Hymenaeus. He rejected self-watchfulness. Notice this text in 1 Timothy 1, 18-19. We're going to be spending most of our time in that text. If you want to open up your Bibles to that text. 1 Timothy 1, 18-19. Again, Paul says to him, This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight. There is the, the key idea of this passage. Fight the good fight, Timothy. But then he explains that this is done by keeping faith and a good conscience. Timothy was to invest a, a great amount of energy, a great amount of strain. This is military terminology, fight the good fight. And, and Paul is calling upon Timothy to invest everything he has, every ounce of energy in this ministry and in the Christian life in general. And he's to do that by keeping faith and a good conscience. But then he says this, which some have rejected. Now the some there, he, Paul goes on to identify in verse 20. These are Hymenaeus and Alexander. And this verb for rejected that Paul uses here is a very strong verb, and it, it literally means to push away, to push from. The verb indicates a, a conscious, deliberate rejection, an act of spurning, where a conscious decision is made. This is not just some mismanagement. This is not something unintentional or simply because of lack of discipline. This is a choice. Hymenaeus made a choice. He made a decision. There was deliberate rejection. And as we look at this more, we can see that that which was rejected is defined in two ways. He rejected two things. First of all, he rejected faith and he rejected a good conscience. Now, what do these things mean? I think we can understand a good conscience Essentially, a good conscience is a healthy conscience, a conscience that works, that operates, a conscience that signals the right things. He rejected that. He essentially shut down his conscience, we could say that. But what does it mean that he rejected faith? Well, the word faith here is, is best understood in the sense of personal trust, personal confidence, he rejected a, an affection, a, a love for Jesus, you could say. That's what faith is. In this context here, in this phrase, faith is not the objective content of the gospel that he rejected per se. He's going to get to that. But at this point, he rejected a healthy, robust affection for Jesus. And notice that these two things for Paul are intertwined. This personal trust and a good conscience. You see, a robust personal faith in Christ exists only in the context of a conscience that works, that is operating, 
that is being informed by truth and is being exercised and vice versa. A robust conscience, a good conscience exists only in the context of a strong personal faith. And this is important for the Apostle Paul. He, he refers to these two things several times in the same context within the letter of 1 Timothy. For example, even a few sentences earlier in chapter 1, verse 5, he says that the goal of our instruction, Timothy, is a good conscience and a sincere faith. There you have the idea of personal trust, a sincere faith, a personal affection, a love, a trust, a confidence. He also says that of deacons, that deacons are to exhibit a good conscience and a sincere faith. And that's the exact thing of what Hymenaeus rejected. He made the decision to no longer pay attention to those things, to no longer have those as, as the object of his consideration and vigilance. As we look at this phrase further, notice that we see that Paul commands Timothy that these things are kept in line with fighting this good fight. These two things, a sincere faith, a sincere love for Jesus, and a clean conscience that is operating can only be maintained through strenuous activity, through battle, through scarring, through bruises, through a fight. But Hymenaeus was unwilling, and this is where apostasy begins to manifest itself. When we talk about apostasy, we're talking about those who have a counterfeit, false, spurious faith. And it will often, often manifest itself, first of all, in a professing believer who shuts off these things. They they, they may have been an important thing to him for a while. He may have talked about them in positive terms that he's, he is all for affection for Jesus. He loves Jesus. He may have talked about his conscience and how he's, he feels sorrow over certain things and so on and so forth. But there comes a point in time when he turns that off. And this is where apostasy begins to manifest itself. And it's important to note this, men. Apostasy does not need to begin with a denial of doctrine. It does not need to begin with the denial of the virgin birth or substitutionary atonement or the resurrection of Jesus, the nature of saving faith by grace alone, through faith alone in Christ alone. Hymenaeus' apostasy began with a conscious decision not to be vigilant over the state of his walk with Christ and the purity of his conscience. And we need to take this into account because especially in our context here where we are fed such good doctrine, I, I doubt that there's men in this, this, this room here tonight who would say, I'm, yeah, I question these cardinal doctrines. Probably not. But if we're going to see apostasy in our midst, it's probably going to be here where Hymenaeus began to evidence apostasy in a conscience that is desensitized and an affection for Jesus that grows cold. As one commentator said, more often than we know, religious error has its roots in moral rather than intellectual causes. 
And I think there's enough history that bears this out, that sometimes when we do see professors, both in terms of professors of faith in general, and even professors in seminaries, when they go off the deep end, when they turn apostate, and they begin to espouse horrendous lies, often that has been preceded by a great deal of immorality. You see, apostasy thrives in a context of moral deterioration. So the question is for you men, is this happening in your lives? What is the state of your conscience today? Is it healthy? Is it active? Do you feel your conscience? That God-given mechanism to put on the signal to say, stop, or this is wrong. Is that active in your life, or has it been a long time since you saw that blinking light? What about your affection for Jesus? Are you watching over that? Can you trace a, an increase? Can, can you see that your personal confidence in the person of Jesus is stronger today than it has been in the past? Or are you one like Hymenaeus who is today looking and saying, I have no confidence in him. Recognize that this is where apostasy begins to manifest itself. And Paul predicted that such apostasy will get worse. Notice what he goes on to say in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, where he says the Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. The conscience has become so scarred, no longer operates. And that's why Paul goes on to warn Timothy, 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 pay attention. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Pay close attention to yourself. Pastor John has said this, no one sets out to become an apostate. It's never the result of one abrupt, drastic turn away from the Lord. Instead, apostasy is most often the product of a pattern of sinful compromises that harden and gradually steer a professing believer away from the truth. As I have interacted with apostates, it isn't a case where they just woke up one morning and it was done. No, that decision was preceded, as Pastor John says, by a lot of sinful compromises. Number two, a second characteristic of Hymenaeus and his apostasy. He experienced spiritual collapse, spiritual disaster. First Timothy 1, 18 to 19, again, it says this, where Paul commands Timothy to fight the good fight, keeping faith in a good conscience, which some have rejected and have suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. You could even translate this as follows, which some, having rejected the faith and good conscience, have suffered shipwreck. The, this is really the, the main idea. This is the consequence of the cause, the suffering of shipwreck. Paul knew all about shipwrecks. We know that. He used the same verb to describe how he had suffered shipwreck three times out in open sea. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 25. He knew about shipwreck. He could speak on this. Hymenaeus, however, figuratively suffered shipwreck. 
And this verb used in the figurative sense refers to the experience of a great loss or of disaster. And so when we see Paul refer to this, we can see that such shipwreck, such disaster came as a result of Hymenaeus' decision to forsake self-watchfulness. This deficiency led to his devastation, not at open sea, but in regard to the faith. And again, in, in our in our understanding of faith here, the first reference to faith that we saw in, in the beginning of verse 19, keeping faith, that refers to personal faith, the sincere faith. But this second reference to faith, shipwrecked in regard to their faith, is better understood not as personal faith, but as objective faith. It's better understood as referring to the content of the gospel, as orthodoxy, as the content of the apostolic witness. And, and what Paul is, is saying here is that he did not, Hymenaeus did not keep personal faith. And as a result, he crashed and burned with respect to the Christian faith. That his seared conscience and his, his, his dying love, whatever kind of love that was for Jesus, eventually led him to the point where he came crashing against the rocks of orthodoxy and was destroyed. The image, the image here is very vivid. And, and those like Timothy who were there in Ephesus would have understood this because Ephesus was on the Aegean Sea. It was a coastal city and cargo ships came into that port. Cargo ships at that time were the largest and most impressive inventions of the day. They were things of beauty and brawn if you'd see them moving on the, on the seas. But even something so well crafted could be destroyed by the sea's waves in a matter of moments should that ship run aground uh, a reef or a shoal or strike rocks along the coast. And a shipwreck was therefore the epitome of disaster because a wrecked ship could not be put back together again. Just the nature of a shipwreck. You could maybe use the wood for something else, but you could not build that ship back together. Now, what Hymenaeus experienced here was, was, was not a loss of salvation. It's not what he's referring to, what Paul is referring to. But he's referring in, by use of this imagery to refer to this public, decisive manifestation of the counterfeit nature of Hymenaeus' profession. You see, for a time, Hymenaeus could, could sail along, continuing in that imagery, pretending to be an authentic disciple. He could look like any other believer in the church for a time. But after a while, time catches up and truth is revealed. He may have for a time participated in evangelism. He may have participated in the Lord's Supper. He may have even talked theology. But Hymenaeus' false professions could not stand the test of time. He could not indefinitely steer that faulty ship through the trials and temptations of life. His profession was not seaworthy and he crashed, was destroyed. One Puritan said this about apostasy. He said, religion, which is begun in hypocrisy, and that's Hymenaeus and his seared conscience, will certainly end in apostasy. Let's look at the third characteristic here. 
Not only did it begin with a love grown cold and moral infidelity, it then moved to a very decisive destruction where he crashed and burned. But now we also see that Hymenaeus advocated substantive error. And this is not just a mistake in his profession. This is not just a a small little misspoken word. This is substantive error. And this is what you will find among apostates. They will eventually advocate and promote error at its substantive form. Notice again what Paul writes in verse 20 of chapter 1, 1 Timothy. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. Now the sin is about the words. Now the problem is that which is spoken. And this verb blaspheme can be used to describe different kinds of speech. It's always negative, obviously, and it can even be referred or used in reference to maligning others. It can be used on a, on a horizontal level, and, and, and Paul will, will go on to say that, that in Titus 3, verse 2, for example, that Christians must malign or blaspheme no one. So Paul is saying, essentially, you can blaspheme others by stating things that are erroneous, slanderous, that defile and defame. But it's also used to refer to speaking erroneously and to speaking impiously and irreverently about God, but a transcendent being. And Paul refers to that even of himself, even just a few verses earlier in first Timothy one, verse 13, where he says, I was formerly a blasphemer. Paul uses that cognate idea to refer to himself. I blasphemed, Paul said, speaking of his, his life before the Damascus road experience, when he slandered, Christians and slandered the Lord Jesus. In Hymenaeus's case, the insolence appears to have been directed towards God and his gospel, perhaps against Paul as well, but it appears that, that Hymenaeus's blasphemy was, was theological in nature. It was doctrinal in nature. And in fact, we can see this evidenced in what Paul refers in what Paul describes a few years later in 2 Timothy chapter 2, when he refers to a specific area of Hymenaeus's error. Go back to this text in 2 Timothy 2, verses 16 to 18. Paul talks about men, Hymenaeus and Philetus, men who have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place, and they upset the faith of some. Now, what is happening here is not that Hymenaeus denied a resurrection. He's not denying the fact of the resurrection. The Sadducees did that. The Sadducees were a sect of the Jewish leadership, and they denied any, any resurrection of the, of the physical body. The Pharisees believed in a future resurrection. Sadducees denied it. And it's not that Hymenaeus just denied the resurrection, but he, he denied it with respect to future resurrection of believers' bodies. You may, not, you may say, well, is this a real big deal? It was a huge deal. It was a substantive error. You see, what, what is probably taking place here is, is that Hymenaeus had, had, had embraced a kind of worldview, a dualistic worldview that believed that the material world is 
inherently immoral, inherently evil. So the material world does not matter. Instead, we just live in some kind of spiritual world. That led some of these kinds of people in in Paul's day who advocated that kind of error along with Hymenaeus to believe that you need to become ascetics, to deny marriage, to deny foods and those kinds of things because the body is evil. (coughs) But others believed that the denial of the goodness of the material world meant that you could live your physical life in whatever way you pleased. And that's probably Hymenaeus. We saw evidence of that earlier in his immorality. But regardless, what was happening was that Hymenaeus was rejecting the idea of a future bodily resurrection for believers. And Paul says that by rejecting this, he has gone astray. This is evidence of blasphemy against God and the promises of the gospel, including a future resurrection. So we can see this progression here in Hymenaeus's life so far. A rejection of self-watchfulness led to the experience of spiritual destruction and then even the promotion of substantive error. Like what Spurgeon says, the raw material for a devil is an angel. The raw material for the son of perdition was an apostle. And the raw material for the most horrible of apostates is one who is almost a saint. We see that with Hymenaeus. Finally, final observation to make here, Hymenaeus also merited severe discipline. Uh, To be an apostate is no small thing. It needs to be treated with utmost seriousness, and that's what we see Paul doing. Paul says he handed him over to Satan, 1 Timothy 1 verse 20. Now, a lot of interpreters struggle with this. It seems that Paul is recruiting Satan to work together in in dealing with Hymenaeus. And and it's it's troubling to think that way. But I don't believe that that's what Paul is saying. When we look at this verb to teach, it conveys the idea of stern punishment. In fact, depending on context, it can be translated as educate. It can be in, it, it translated as discipline. It can, be, it can be translated as instruct, which may be the case here, or it can be translated as punish. I tend to say, see it as that final idea. It's a stern punishment. Paul handed Hymenaeus over to Satan for punishment. The idea is this. The unrepentance the unrepentant sinner's definitive removal from the church is necessary so that he would be exposed to the full consequences of his sin. And often the full consequences of his sin in this life are administered by the enemy of his soul, Satan. Find the same idea in 1 Corinthians 5, verses 4 to 5, where you have the tremendous immorality taking place among one of the members there, and, and, and Paul says, in the name of the Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, I am with you in spirit and with the power of the Lord Jesus. I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. This is a very sobering thought. 
And it leads us to this conclusion as we think of what Paul is talking about here. The church is palace beautiful if we use the analogy again of pilgrim's progress. The church is in, in every sense a refuge from the threats and the temptations and the perils of this world. And outside the church is the domain of Satan. And what the final step of church discipline does is it removes the unrepentant sinner, in this case, the apostate Hymenaeus, from all the church's protections and allows him to face, already in this life, the brunt, the consequences of his apostasy. As we think of that a little more, let me read this one quotation from Mounts, uh, one commentator. The world outside the church is Satan's realm. By being removed from Christian fellowship, Hymenaeus and his associate Alexander are separated from the spiritual protection of the church and fully exposed to the power of Satan. The lesson they must learn is best taught by personal exposure to the malice of those who, like themselves, are fighting the truth. That's what makes church discipline such a sobering thing. It must be practiced, as Paul demonstrates. But that practice of church discipline, if it is not, if it is not accepted by the erring brother, if it is not accepted by the professor of faith, it eventually leaves that sinner exposed to all the wiles of Satan. Because the purpose of church discipline is to remove the influence and is to place the person in his real domain, the domain of the devil. As we conclude from this, let me read from Sinclair Ferguson. In a little article he wrote, Apostasy and How It Happens, he concludes the article and and he says this, Yes, Apostasy happens. Sometimes the catalyst is flagrant sin. The pain of conviction and repentance is refused. And the only alternative is wholesale rejection of Christ. But sometimes the catalyst is a thorn growing quietly in the heart, an indifference to the way of the cross, a drifting that is not reversed by the knowledge of biblical warnings. What do we do in light of this example of Hymenaeus? We must not pass over it quickly. We must take his example into account, and I want to give you several things to do in response. Number one, examine yourself. Examine yourself particularly with respect to the sincerity of your personal trust in Christ and the purity of your conscience. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves, or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus is in you, unless, indeed, you fail the test. Don't go on any longer in a false profession, for that will only harden your heart. If your profession has been false, the best thing for you to do is to acknowledge that at this moment, while there is still hope, And flee to Christ in the true sense. Number two, 
for those who have examined themselves and found themselves to be in the faith, still the example of Hymenaeus challenges us to be ever so careful with our attentiveness to God's word. We read this from Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. For this reason, and he's speaking of the problem of apostasy, for this reason we must pay closer attention, much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. The example of apostates are used divinely to instruct and strengthen us as a means to keep us on the rails. And that means we must see Hymenaeus' example and, and allow that to cause us to pay very close attention to every jot and tittle that we read in God's word. Number three, guard what has been entrusted to you. This is no small thing. He says to Timothy as he closes that letter in 1 Timothy 6, 20 to 21, O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and have thus gone astray from the faith. Grace be with you. Guard what has been entrusted. Don't be ambivalent. Don't let the defenses down. Jude 3 says, contend earnestly for the faith. Man, we, we set ourselves up for failure if we think that, well, I walked the aisle and I signed a card, I prayed a prayer, now I just coast to the finish line. Now, we must guard what has been entrusted to you. Now, this becomes a part of what God uses in our lives to preserve us to the end. Number four, attach yourself to the church. When Paul says that he has handed Hymenaeus over to Satan, it means Hymenaeus is out of the protection of the church. That means outside, out there, where you're not part of the congregation. That's the devil's playground. And do you think you can stand against him? And in response to that, we must recognize and cherish the church for what it really is. Yes, a gathering of imperfect people on their way to the celestial city with many struggles and many scars and many problems along the way, but it still is that place of refuge. So you must do everything to recognize your responsibility that when a brother comes to you that in that first step and admonishes you for a sin, you respond immediately in repentance and confession. Because the end result of excommunication is devastating. Number five, pray to and rest in Jesus. It's ultimately him who will keep us fast. Psalmist in Psalm 119 says, With all my heart I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. This precious text in Hebrews 7, verse 25. Therefore, he, Jesus, is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Ultimately, we are not kept by our power, we're only kept by his. We sang the song just a, a while ago. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the one I love. Well, in the end, who is it that keeps us from wandering? 
is Jesus. And so our hearts must always be filled with this pleading and gratitude, pleading that Jesus would do just that, that he would save us to the uttermost and also gratitude because he always lives to make intercession. And you know what? Jesus and no other mediator, Jesus is the one who gets us to the end, to the celestial city. Let me just read one more thing from Pilgrim's Progress. As Christian asked the purpose of this vignette, the sixth vignette in the house of the interpreter. Then the interpreter said to Christian, let this man's misery be remembered by thee and be an everlasting caution to thee. And Christian responded, well, this is fearful. God help me to watch and be sober and to pray that I may shun the cause of this man's misery. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this text describing Hymenaeus because it is through this negative example that we receive warning. And it's through this warning that you keep us on the right path. This is one of the very many manifold means by which you preserve us to the end. And we're thankful that we can rest in you for that. But along the way, as we rest in you, we pray you would not let us rest in respect to our own vigilance. Instead, make us ever more mindful of our responsibility to fight the good fight, not to let up, not to fall asleep, not to abdicate our post, but to stand at attention, to stand firm through to the end. Only you can empower us to do that. Only you can make that happen. And we look to you and ask these things in the name of Jesus, our great intercessor. Amen.